Okay, well, I am so excited today. I want to welcome Gavin Dew to Coastal Front as our second guest on our BC Liberal Leadership Series. Born and raised in Vancouver, Gavin is currently the youngest candidate to announce his intention to run to the top position of the BC Liberal Party. Gavin has stated he is largely running for his young family and to create a bridge to the next generation of voters. With a Bachelor of Arts in English from UBC and then followed on with a MBA in business from the University of Oxford, Gavin has built a career in bringing people together across business, government, and community sectors. Whether it be in education, housing, transit, tech, or addressing climate change, Gavin has done it. Two of Gavin's many highlights include the creation of the Forum for Millennial Leadership, a nonpartisan group that helps select millennials to various levels of governance, regardless of their party ideology. Additionally, Gavin was the chief strategic advisor for the Abbotsford Tech District, which aims to create a sustainable and complete community for young people to live, study, and work. To help our listeners follow along, we'll give Gavin the opportunity to tell us who he is and why he's running, and then jump into a series of questions surrounding specific policies and ideologies impacting our province. With this setup, we hope to not only give candidates a chance to comment on key issues, but also to give voters a chance to know the candidate without the formalities of a campaign. So Gavin, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So let's start off with talking about the BC Liberal Party today. Let's talk about what your view is of the party itself today. And we're going to talk about yourself. That sounds great. So I think we need to start by understanding where we are today in order to understand how we move forward. I think that most people know the BC Liberals got beat in the last election. And it's really important for us to understand that we have been beaten. And now is the time to rebuild. I think it's easy for us to cling to the idea that if we just close our eyes and pray for a couple of years, people will swing right back, the pendulum will swing right back, and we'll have a brand new government. I say that isn't so. I say there's hard work ahead of us. We have to fundamentally renew our party. We have to look to the future. We have to put forward new ideas, new energy, and new people in order to convince people to give us another shot at government. And if you look at how we got to where we are today, I think the honest truth is this. Our party lost relevancy with the next generation of voters. It lost relevancy with its own grassroots. You've seen conservatives drift away. You've seen many young people, the natural next generation of our base of voters, who have not become part of our party. So there's a ton of work ahead. There's no simple solutions. There's no shortcuts. We have to fundamentally rebuild this party and look to the future. And that's what I'm setting out to do. Okay, well, that's a good intro on where the party is today and where it needs to go. Now about Gavin Dew. A lot of our listeners have never heard of you before. So tell us a bit about who you are other than the intro I just did. And, and why did you just choose, or why have you chosen this time to run for the BC Liberal leadership? Yeah, so this is all about family for me. I've got two young kids. My daughter's three years old. My son is eight months old. I've got a family growing up in Vancouver. I was born and raised here. And I've seen the challenge among my generation of people just feeling as if the rungs on the ladder are further and further apart, feeling a sense of alienation, young families struggling to get ahead, uh, job creators, business people deciding whether this is the place to build their business or somewhere else. So all of those issues, almost that malaise that has captured British Columbia, that sense of alienation and questioning that's happening among the next generation of young people, young families, but also the next cohorts, the next tranches of business people, I really have seen that firsthand. And when we lost the last provincial election, there was a lot of shoegazing, a lot of uh, sitting around and talking with people, a lot of trying to decide where do we go from here. And I found myself wrestling with what should I do? 
Honestly, I found myself wrestling with whether I should just walk away and go watch Paw Patrol with my kids and make money, because that'd be a lot easier. Uh, but I came to the fundamental belief that our party needed renewal. It needed to have somebody come along who was able and willing to both understand the history of our party, to build on strengths, but also to fundamentally turn the page and look to the future. So that's what got me convinced uh, to step back from my private sector career and take time away from my family in order to put my name forward and run to lead the BC Liberal Party. Okay. And it sounds like you were involved in the last election somehow? Yeah, I've been involved in the BC Liberal Party for uh, ever since 2008. Okay. So I got pulled in. Uh, I've run campaigns. I've been very involved. I've helped to prepare candidates. Uh, so in the last election, how were you involved? I was knocking on doors, like okay. a lot of people. Uh, you know, I think the honest truth For is... one particular MLA? I was knocking on doors in about nine different ridings. Okay. So I was uh, involved, uh, as everyone was. You know, you get out there, you do your part, you support your team. And I think that's very, very important. Uh, but I think there were a lot of people, myself included, who kind of felt as if they drifted away or being pushed away from the party and as if the tent was getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and there was really no room for us. So I think now what we're going through is this period where we need to kind of throw the doors open and we need to invite people back in and create a sense and a reality that the grassroots are not some hostile group that needs to be kept at bay or kept out. The grassroots are the essence of their party. We need to get those people that have drifted away and bring them back in. We need to build a next generation of grassroots who really feel as if they're invested in the party, the party is invested in them, and we're looking to the future, not just dwelling in the past. Okay, well, that's good. And it'll be interesting to hear from you as we talk about uh, who these people are. Mm -hmm. So for the listeners to understand what we're going to do, we're going to go through a bit of a power round or a lightning round. It's a bit longer than a lightning round. Um, uh, touching on a number of key topics or themes. So those include childcare, housing affordability, the environment. I want to talk about cannabis, and I know it's an area that you've got some, some knowledge in. Healthcare and the opioid crisis, taxation and responsible spending. So a bit of a, bit of a big list there. And I'm going to get into some pointed questions. A lot of them will just be uh, very much a yes or no, and we'll be curious to see what you have to say about these. So let's start off with childcare, your dad of two young children, as you pointed out, and you own a place called Rain or Shine. That's right, along with my wife. Okay, now if you're in Vancouver, Rain or Shine is a phenomenal ice cream shop. I'm, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> Look, we, we actually went to Rain or Shine ice cream uh, the day we got married. So we got <laughs> married and we were driving home and we stopped by Rain or Shine ice cream, just on a whim, to walk in and get some ice cream. And uh, the owners said, listen, you're coming to the front of the line and you're not paying. And everybody there kind of parted like the Red Sea. We went, we got our ice cream, we left, they hugged us, they cheered. It was this amazing moment. So then we stole their name. <laughs> well, maybe we should get dive right into, uh, in, into uh, what was it called when you have protection on uh, intellectual protection, patent yeah. protections? <laughs> okay. All right. So you and your wife have two young children, ages three years and five months, three years eight and eight months, months, excuse me. Um, and you've got a childcare center uh, named Rain or Shine. What is the reality like for parents trying to access childcare today here in BC? Brutal, brutal. Uh, what you're dealing with is you've got massive lineups. You've got, uh, you know, we have dozens of people on a waiting list. You have people reaching out, begging for childcare. We had a childcare facility uh, relatively near us that shut down recently, and you'll just see a wave of parents all trying to get into childcare. In our neighborhood, uh, I think we're short maybe 1,200 spaces. I'd have to check the latest numbers. Massive shortfalls of childcare. Massive, massive need. And at the same time as there is massive, massive need, 
there's lots of big promises, lots of big words from the NDP, but what I view as an abject failure to actually increase supply. Because the fact of the matter is they've got good intentions, but they have terrible execution and they have no understanding of how people make decisions in a small business environment. So they've actually made it harder and harder and harder for childcare operators to exist, to open new spaces, to create new uh, capacity and to respond to demand in neighborhoods. So I mean, there's just fundamental, fundamental flaws to the way that they're approaching childcare. And I would argue, I actually think the NDP is trying to move toward a model that is all government-run, unionized childcare with no room left for small operators. And, you know, we've had a lot of conversations in recent years about the importance of supporting, in particular, women entrepreneurs. The reality is, I would guess that 90% of childcare operators are women entrepreneurs, and this government is systematically crushing their hopes and dreams, hmm. making it harder and harder and harder for them to do what they're trying to do, which is to provide value, provide a service to their community. You see these absurd stories, and we've seen them directly firsthand, uh, where you know I've seen child cares that were unable to open because after investing $50,000 in six months, they got told they could not get licensed because they were short one parking space. It's wow, Kafka-esque, it's absurd, right? It's just this bureaucratic, uh, ridiculous situation. And I think we see it across childcare, we see it across housing, where everybody talks a big game about how we want more childcare, we want more affordable housing, but we create just an ocean of red tape that makes it harder and harder for people to actually get that done. And I'm assuming you can speak to this firsthand because of you and your wife having a childcare center yourselves. I absolutely can. Yeah. Who, who started that? Was more your wife or yourself? Yeah, yeah absolutely, or? her leadership. Okay. Uh, I'm and really just there as the janitor and the accountant. <laughs> right, okay. And um, how long have you guys been running it for? Uh, we've been up and running for about, uh, I want to say, uh, three, four years now. Yeah, okay. And what was the motivation for you starting that up in the first place? It was a combination of uh, um, we were actually, we were building a home. Uh, yeah. So we run our childcare out of our, out of our basement lock-off suite. Uh, it was a good way for us to generate some additional income to help support our mortgage. Housing's expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, my, uh, my wife, Erin, had uh, worked for about 10 years uh, with children on the autism spectrum uh, as a special ed assistant, had a ton of experience working with, uh, with kids, mm -hmm. and also had operated uh, um, a, uh, an organic nail spa, so a ton of experience in frontline business. Yeah. So really, it was her initiative to put that together. Uh, and again, I'm really just the, the accountant and the yeah. janitor. You know, I make sure that, uh, you know, bills are paid and little things like that. But it's really uh, her energy that makes it happen. Yeah. Well, clearly, just by the fact that you're running this yourselves for the last couple of years, I think that uh, I don't know if I'll have another guest on here can probably speak more eloquently to it than, than you can. So let's carry on with this conversation a bit more. I've heard this thing a lot about this, uh, you know, $10 a day daycare. So what is your position on this $10 a day daycare program and has the BC NDP government delivered on this promise? So it's a two-time campaign promise that they've systematically failed to deliver on. Can right? maybe explain, for the people who are past the age of having little kids yeah. or can you just first of all maybe in real layman's terms explain what is $10 a day sure. daycare and then explain how it's been an abundant failure. Yeah, yeah. so $10 a day uh, daycare I think started as, as a political slogan and it's a good slogan. I think to be totally clear affordable childcare is extraordinarily important. Making sure we have childcare available uh, that supports disproportionately women in terms of their ability to take part in the workforce if they wish to do so is extremely important. We need to do better on childcare and we need to look at childcare um, not as a uh, just as a social service type issue. We need to look at childcare as an economic issue because it is a very serious enabler. 
uh, for, points. again, in particular women uh, in the workforce. So I'm very, very strongly committed to increasing and improving childcare and making sure that it meets the needs of parents that want to work. Uh, but how you do that is different from do you do that. So $10 a day childcare, again, started as, a, as a primarily a campaign slogan. Um, from an outside group who are strong advocates for child care. It became an NDP campaign promise. And I think like a lot of things the NDP does, uh, sounded great, didn't it? Nice slogan, fits on a bumper sticker. There's a couple of problems with it. Uh, the first is that it does not cost $10 a day to deliver child care. The actual cost of delivering child care is significantly greater than $10 per day per kid. What is it? Uh, it really depends on exactly how you're doing things. You could be looking, I couldn't give you a definitive number, but when you actually look at the cost of, you know, the capital cost of space, when you look at operating costs, when you look at, uh, you know, questions around utilization rates, for example, uh, you know, are you at uh, an 87% utilization rate of your spaces over the course of the year, or are you at 93? Any business person worth their salt, you know, you run those numbers, unless you're the NDP. And I would mention, for the record, that the NDP actually put in a fee cap on child care recently where in a... Have they really? Of, yeah, they, in a fit of good intentions, uh, they put in a fee cap designed to try to drive down the cost of child care. But what they actually did is they put in a fee cap that in many places in British Columbia was less than the cost to provide child care, either because they got the numbers wrong or they didn't understand that, for example, if you're spending six months waiting for licensing and permitting, you're front-loading capital costs... Uh, you're dealing with questions like utilization. If you've got, for example, a child who needs care on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but not the other three days, uh, if you've got two months where you've got a space vacant, you've got, to count, you've got to account for all those utilization questions. And they seemingly just had no understanding of how a small business actually worked. So they put into place a fee cap, which actually ended up reducing the amount of childcare spaces available which is just absurd. I mean, anybody who has any rudimentary understanding of economics understands that if you artificially constrain supply and demand is rip-roaring, you're going to see upward pressure on prices mm -hmm. or you're going to see unmet demand. Absolutely. So, you know, this NDP government just fundamentally does not seem to understand that whatsoever and seems to be very focused on trying to ram in a one-size-fits-all childcare model. Uh, so I'm a very big believer that we need to be much more flexible around the way that we do child care. Okay. Uh, one example I'll provide. Yeah, and, and let's do that because that's going to be my next question is to wrap this up. Um, so you made it clear on how the NDP government's failing. You've obviously made it clear that you're an expert in the space. So you're the head of the BC Liberal Party now running for to be premier. Let's say you're premier. How would you deliver it this differently than what the NDP has, what you say has failed to do? Yeah, great question. I think we need to look at it from a comprehensive perspective. There are a couple of key things that we need to do. The first is that we need to address some of the structural barriers that make it hard to open childcare spaces. So right now, for example, childcare is jointly regulated and licensed by municipal and provincial governments. One of the first things that I would do is basically try to move to sort of a uh, SWAT team or a concierge model where you have one team that is actually doing the licensing. You have total variation across different municipalities right now. Some municipalities will come and inspect your facility prior to tenant improvements and give you some certainty that you're going to be able to have 13 children in care, for example. In other jurisdictions, they won't inspect your facility until it's completely set up, built out, all the toys are there, all the equipment is there, and they might come in and arbitrarily tell you, you can only have six kids, not eight. What municipality is that? Vancouver. 
Uh, so I always figured you're going to say Vancouver. Yeah, right. So, so, you know, getting some common sense into the way that we Amazing. do childcare licensing is important. Expediting the licensing is very important. Enacting some flexibility around where you can do childcare, how you can do childcare, and making sure it's responsive to the actual needs of parents is very important. And the one final thing that I included in a thing I call the family pack that I put out uh, very early in my campaign is as it stands, uh, there's government dollars available to support you as a parent if you put your child into childcare. But they're only available if you go into a structured childcare program. For many families, they actually rely on grandparents to care for kids. So sure. shouldn't you be able to take that 300 or that $500 a month and say, I'm going to designate uh, my mother-in-law, for example. I'm going to designate someone in my family who's going to be the designated care provider and is going to provide a flexible level of care, mm -hmm. who's going to be there to support the child no matter what, who's got you know a very, very close familial relationship with the child. And those dollars can help to support healthy snacks, transportation, things like that. So it should be recognized, and that's a great way to alleviate pressure on the childcare system as well, is to support grandparents, for example, or other fa other family members who are helping to provide childcare. Okay, that's really good, Gavin. Um, I'm interested in this because I'm a father of three as well. They're not as young as yours now, but uh, I've got two more questions ar around this. One, uh, if you look at the low end of the economic spectrum, uh, let's say a classically a, a single mom with two young children um, and is barely getting by on a minimum wage job, should the provincial government be providing her with free childcare? Yeah, I mean, I think we've got to figure out what the right balance is, right? Okay. I mean, if we can enable people, so for example, the, the BC- Is there anybody who would reach a threshold that should receive free childcare in BC? Uh, I would say there's probably a good argument to be made there. I haven't dug into that on a detailed level, okay. but as an example, the BC Liberals put out a policy called the Single Parent Employment Initiative some years ago that was very geared toward trying to address that exact group of people. Primarily, uh, it does tend to be single mothers uh, who are captured by, by the program, and one of the major issues that they often face uh, is that they're unable to move forward with skills training or post-secondary opportunities or into employment because it's really hard to, to juggle uh, being a parent and kind of moving forward in your career in that way. So they were able to put together a series of supports that helped to make it possible for folks to get uh, support around childcare, get support around education and skills training, and get into employment without uh, what economists call a welfare trap, right? Where you're stuck in a position where the benefits are just enough that it doesn't make sense for you to move forward and move into employment. So we need to be really, really smart and compassionate around the way that we, we help people uh, to move forward in their lives. Okay. My last question on this topic is, on the other end of the economic spectrum, are there people who re earn enough income that shouldn't receive any kind of government support for childcare? Yeah, I think that's a very, very fair point. Um, I think we need to look at the way that's all done. So let me give you an example that gets into uh, income levels and support. At a, at a recognizing this is a federal uh, component, the Canada Child Care Benefit is structured right now so that you get the same level of, uh, you're measured against the same standards no matter where you live. Now the cost of childcare and the cost of things like mortgages and rent are vastly different in different parts of the country. Sure they we are. We probably ought to be uh, being a little bit uh, smarter around the way we approach some of these pieces. So you'd but, make it regionalized? Well, in that instance, that's a federal policy, so I'd obviously have to work with the, the federal government around that. But I certainly do believe we should be regionalizing some of these things because while there's pressure on parents all over the province, there's an absolutely massive level of pressure on parents who are struggling with urban and suburban housing costs. And there's a whole bunch of knock-on effects through the economy which drive up the price of childcare. 
So effectively, you're being held against the exact same income threshold for your eligibility for some of these grants. But you know those same dollars. They don't go, stretch as they far. They don't stretch as far. Yeah. In particular, if you're in uh, you know urban or, or suburban British Columbia, so yeah. you got to be looking, I think, in a much more smart way at the reality on the ground for for young families. Okay. And phenomenal segue into our next category, <laughs> which is affordable housing. A new survey by Research Co stated that a growing number of British Columbians believe housing interventions through taxation are ineffective in improving affordability. So just repeat that. This research has found that more and more British Columbians believe that housing interventions through taxation are ineffective. What's your position on that? Well, I mean, I think you have to get down to the very fundamental intent of taxation, right? Taxation is there to collect revenue, and taxation does also send price signals to the market, right? It's used to affect behavior. So um, I think that taxes send signals and change incentives regardless. But what I think that that poll result speaks to, I think, is a frustration among British Columbians with the fact that there's been big talk for years and years from every level of government uh, about uh, improving affordability. Okay. And not only is it seemingly not working, uh, but it's also really pushing and pulling in very contradictory different directions. Because I mean, you know, you're a you're a economically savvy guy. You know that there's not one button you can push that is the affordable button, right? There's there's you know 13 or 17 or 27 different variables all driving absolutely uh, cost of housing. It's complex. Exactly. So mm -hmm. you've got municipal governments where you're you know um, throughout the Lower Mainland, for example, and, and elsewhere in the province. Uh, well, we keep on electing these city councils that say they want to make housing affordable. And they keep on taking forever to get approvals done. They keep on driving up sure. red tape. They keep on driving up the regulatory and permitting costs associated with housing. And the reality is, you know, you, you can't actually tax a business. You can only tax consumers through business. Mm -hmm. And you can't actually tax a developer. You're taxing the end user of That's housing. That's 100%. So when there's $80,000 in, uh, you know, regulatory costs, let's say, on a typical door of housing, well, that's money that the end user, whether that's an owner or a renter, is going to pay. And there seems to be a fundamental lack of understanding that you can't talk a big game about housing affordability and then seemingly do everything in your power in order to prevent it from actually happening. Sure. Right? So we've got to recognize how the pieces fit together. We've got to recognize that uh, you know quantitative easing at a federal level have been, has been driving up uh, what people can afford to buy. We've got to recognize that people don't seem to understand this too broadly. We've got to recognize the impact of insurance, for example, right? The inability to uh, to uh, to uh, renew insurance on primarily, uh, you know, fairly uh, older housing stock is uh, causing a lot of incentive in the marketplace for those lower end properties to be sold, and in many cases to be demolished and rebuilt. So what you've got is housing stock that normally rental stock kind of goes from being top tier and moves down the, you know, down the rungs of the ladder every five or seven or 10 years. Instead, some of that affordable housing stock is basically moving back up market. Right? So there's all manner of different things that are happening that are driving our housing market. Uh, we've got to look at them as an integrated whole. We've got to look at them from multiple levels of government. And we can't do what the NDP does, which is look for villains, not solutions. Vancouver does not have the most expensive housing in North America. But we do have the most unaffordable housing in North America. Uh, and there's lots of different ways to talk about affordability. But the one that I find the most compelling is the ratio between the average uh, cost of housing uh, and the average wage. 
And, uh, you know, I'm a little stale on these numbers here, but my recollection is that uh, typically a three to one ratio is considered to be unaffordable. Last I saw, we were north of 13 to one uh, in exactly. Vancouver, and we were kind of descending down to the kind of 11, 9, 8, 7 uh, range as you get out into uh, the suburbs and the Fraser Valley. And that is a function, obviously, of uh, housing prices, but it is also very much a function of wages. And that's why it's really, really important that we strengthen our economy. It's important that we draw more head offices here. It's important that we have an appropriate corporate tax environment where we're not driving people away who would otherwise be creating well-paid jobs to enable people to afford housing. So we cannot just, we will not achieve affordability only by diminishing the price of housing. We'll achieve it as well by strengthening our economy and making sure we have more better paid jobs and then people have, frankly, you know, more more dollars in their jeans at the end of the day. Right. Because they're not being, uh, they're not being taxed to death. So, so Gavin, you just made reference to the fact that, in your words, the NDP uh, government has a tendency to want to look for villains in this housing space. They have a set of policies. They've been in power since basically 2017. And the BC Liberal government didn't really seem to do too much to address affordable housing before that. So maybe you can take a moment to critique what you see as problematic with the current NDP policies, maybe even the former BC Liberal government's policies. And to wrap that, wrap this part up, how would you be different uh, if you were the head of the Liberal Party? I think that you know one of the fundamental debates in housing we need to have, which cuts across both different governments, is about whether government should be in the business of building housing or whether the government should be in the business of enabling markets. And when I hear people talking, uh, you know, from any party about how much money government should invest in building housing, I, I get a little worried. Because the truth is, yes, we should be building housing uh, from a social housing perspective at the bottom end of the market where we need to address the needs of people who are hard to house. We absolutely should be building housing. But look, if you're government and you invest a billion dollars in housing, how much housing does that build, Andrew? Mm -hmm. It builds a few towers. That's the reality, right? We have to realize that government can't actually do anything. We have to be in the business of enabling. There are gaps in the marketplace that government can fill, but we ought to be focused on doing smart things to encourage the right kind of supply, to encourage, for example, whether it be more uh, three-bedroom apartments or to encourage more uh, affordable housing to be built. We have to think of government as an enabler, not a, as, of, of government as, as a fundamental doer on the housing file, because it's just so incredibly expensive. And we could theoretically take every single dollar that you've got, raise your taxes to 90%, take all that money, and just build housing. We, we could do that. But is that really where we want to go as a society? Uh, instead, I think we have to be a lot smarter about enabling supply, making sure it's some of the right kinds of supply, making sure that we're driving down the cost uh, of building housing, particularly the costs that are under the control of government, like the runaway red tape and the massive number of fees, and in some cases, the absurd contradictions in the building code that force you to do things that are silly uh, and that just drive up costs to the end user. So to me, there's got to be a big focus on, again, market enablement, driving down the costs of housing that are imposed by government, whether that is uh, delays in getting supply into the marketplace, whether that is uh, you know building methodologies that perhaps are, are more expensive, uh, whether that is uh, constraints on where you can build housing. We need to be a lot more flexible in that regard, and I think we need to be unafraid to get really serious about getting supply built, you know, while also, of course, respecting neighborhoods. What would climate leadership look like under yourself as the head of the BC Liberal Party, 
And what are some of the targets that you would focus on? Certainly. So, I mean, what I can say about the BC Liberal Party and climate is I think we, frankly, have surrendered leadership uh, on the environmental file. Um, I don't, I think some of that is, is, is political as much as it is policy. But uh, what brought me into the BC Liberal Party in 2008 into 2009 was the revenue neutral carbon tax. I mean, I fundamentally frankly, uh, found myself comfortable in the BC Liberal Party because I saw us leveraging our fiscal credibility to enact smart, forward-looking, fiscally prudent environmental policy. I thought that uh, that was an incredible moment of leadership. And what I often say to my friends who are uh, you know, very environmentally oriented is that 2009 was the peak of green influence in British Columbia because the party of government, the party of the economy, enacted smart, forward-looking, fiscally prudent policy on the environment. In 2017, that might have felt like the peak of green power because the Greens held the balance in the legislature, but they negotiated away their leverage and got stabbed in the back by the NDP. So, you know, I look back at 2009 as a very important moment in this province when it comes to the environment, sustainability, and addressing climate change. So that's my thinking around the environment. Um, I believe that as a, as a province, we need to do our part in terms of addressing uh, global climate change, but we also need to recognize how small we are. We need to recognize that Canada and that British Columbia within Canada accounts for a very, very small portion of global emissions. We should do our part, but we can actually have a much greater global impact if we focus on taking our example, taking what we've done very, very well, taking our leadership, taking our innovation, taking our technology, taking our smart people, taking our resources that can be used to displace uh, you know, uh, more carbon intensive uh, forms of, of energy in the case of, of natural gas, for example, uh, displacing coal-fired power plants. Um, there's huge opportunity there where I believe that we can actually strengthen our economy and do more on the environment if we focus on how we take what we do well and scale it out to the world. Um, so you've touched on two topics that are related to the next two questions I've got. One is on site seed dam, the other is on LNG. Which one do you want to talk about first? Let's talk about LNG. Okay. Do you support it? Yes. You made a reference to its displaces or is to, to replace coal-fired plants. Coal-fired plants are largely, I mean, the biggest polluter of this is in China. Yes. The idea is that an LNG plant in Kitimat will ship LNG over to China and then get them to stop using coal and start using natural gas. But do you actually think that's true? Yes. I mean, we live in a global airshed. The reality is this. Emissions are not here. Emissions are global. Aren't they just trying to consume as much energy as possible? I mean, wouldn't they just keep building their coal-fired plants until they run out of coal but also still use natural gas? China is going to grow. China's going to keep on growing, and China has a voracious appetite for growth. I think if you look... Like, I just struggle to see, and I look, I'm a, I'm a free market kind of guy. I get this idea of the supply and demand and pricing, but I struggle to see how this narrative, like, it sounds convenient. It sounds like it's a good um, way to promote LNG, but I have a hard time understanding how us providing LNG to China is going to somehow convince them to stop burning coal. I think they're going to burn both. Well, I think that, for example, if you were to look at a scenario where China, and let's not forget that India is a massive, massive coal-fired um, uh, power plant uh, economy, uh, if, if, if the fastest growing economies in the world are choosing what their energy mix is going to be, they might not completely eliminate coal from their energy mix. But if, they, if, they, if their growth 
shifts in terms of the uh, uh, the mixture of what their energy sources are, and there is displacement of coal by natural gas as part of that energy mix or as part of that growth, then that is going to reduce global emissions, and that is going to have a significant environmental impact, and it is going to be a huge economic opportunity for British Columbia. So I certainly do support uh, LNG. I support major projects. I'm a big believer that we need to get a lot better at getting to yes in this province. Because frankly, we could have built more LNG facilities had we been better at getting to yes. All right, let's jump to the environment, okay? Um, the BC Liberals significantly increased the rate of old growth logging in BC's interior during their time in government. Where do you stand on protecting old growth forests? Yeah, so there's no simple answer on this, right? The reality is there are definitely old growth trees that are worth more standing than they are felled. Uh, I think that there are significant opportunities around ter uh, 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 tourism. There are significant, uh, you know, considerations. But this is this is one of those issues that you can't skate by with an easy answer on, right? I mean, what we're seeing right now uh, is a really, really major debate uh, around uh, land use, the resource sector, and indigenous rights and title. And you know, we've got to figure out how do we strike the right balance. Where, for example, uh, if we say uh, that we believe in Indigenous rights and title, and if we say we believe in economic self-sufficiency and self-determination and self-efficacy for First Nations, we need to make sure that you know, if they if they want to log, you know, we're not imposing values on them in that regard. Um, I think that there's a to broaden the conversation beyond just the forestry side, I think we're in a really interesting moment in British Columbia where we are coming to a greater recognition uh, of reconciliation, uh, of First Nations rights and title, and we are moving toward a model where uh, First Nations have a greater degree of autonomy, many are striving for a greater degree of economic self-sufficiency, and it, it makes a lot of people really uncomfortable because they're trying to figure out where where to be. Because I think that Having worked in the resource sector, uh, I think that if you're if you're a, a pro resource sector person, it's easy to see a First Nation that's pro resource and say, "Well, that's great. That's reconciliation." And if you're anti resource sector or you're anti a given project, and you see a First Nation standing up and saying, "We don't want this," you say, "Well, that's great. That's reconciliation." And the fact of the matter is, no two situations are the same, no two First Nations are the same, and every First Nation has within it a wide variety of people with a wide variety of different opinions on any given project. So I think, uh, you know, without being too definitive on this, I think as a province and as a country, we're really gonna have to spend some time wrestling with how we think these things through and how we make sure that, frankly, we're not manipulating or appropriating the voices of First Nations uh, uh, in the process, but we're actually empowering and enabling First Nations uh, you know, to, to, to really be part of the conversation. Because the opportunity that exists uh, in First Nations economic development is absolutely astronomical. When we talk about trying to grow our economy, when we talk about our labor force needs, when we talk about our dependency ratio, when we talk about uh, social programs that need to address some of the greatest challenges uh, in, our, in our province and in our country, uh, First Nations are absolutely at the heart of that in so many ways. So we need to take a really, really smart, informed, economically sound approach to working with First Nations in order to enable them to achieve, uh, to achieve success, to exceed, uh, achieve prosperity, and to achieve uh, autonomy. Okay. Okay, last item on the environment is Site C Dam. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy over Site C. It was originally proposed to be about an $11 billion project. 
Its latest estimates are now it's going to be $16 billion and delayed till the year 2025. One of the things that you mentioned earlier is the need for us to electrify British Columbia. Obviously, a project like Site C Dam should help with that. Do you support the Site C Dam, and would you want to help? Would you want to see it through and to its completion? Yeah, we're absolutely going to need more power in this province. You know, if we're talking about making a massive transition to zero emission vehicles, if we're talking about trying to displace uh, other power sources, we're going to continue to need electricity. So realistically, we're going to need the power uh, that comes from Site C. We will likely continue to need other power sources. Now, with that said. Um, no major project ever has ever come in on time or on budget. Uh, this is the reality. I, I uh, you know, I, I read a. So why build them? Uh, they have long-term payoff. They have long-term benefit. I think the, the the challenge that politicians often face is that the discount rate in politics is extremely high. So if something does not pay dividends within the four-year election cycle. Yeah. Politicians often so don't true. do it. Yeah. Right. That is a major problem, much broader than this, that we have to address in terms of how do we make sure that we're making smart long-term investments and that the political incentives aren't all skewed. So we're, you know, we're we're making short-term decisions rather than long-term decisions. Um, Maybe we should have ten-year election cycles. That might be a little long and a little unaccountable, but it's a reality that's baked into into the market. So I think that with Site C. Um, the honest truth is this: uh, if I win this leadership election and I become BC Liberal leader, and I win the election in, let's say it's 2024, Site C is going to be several more years down the line, hundreds of billions, if not billions of more dollars invested. And the honest truth is, I won't be in a decision, in a position to make a decision about whether it moves forward under the current conditions. Good point. Right? So the reality is, we'll be okay. inheriting where it's at. I think the NDP has made some serious errors in terms of the way that they've handled it, uh, and in terms of, you know... The, okay, what are they? Uh, I think... What's, um, what's the top two? Uh, I think uh, they've really found themselves flailing around politically uh, on the issue where you can tell that effectively uh, they, they're not sure whether they want to do it or not do it. John Horgan is, uh, is seemingly trying to kind of be on both sides of the issue at once. Um, so I think they've become very, very political in the approach that they're taking to it uh, in a way that isn't necessarily helping to move the project forward. Um, I'm no expert on the technical processes involved, but my sense is that they went out of their way to uh, bury a damaging technical report uh, prior to the previous election because, you know, they realized that they now owned it. Once the NDP decided to move forward with Site C, it became their project, they owned it, and they seem to have been trying to uh, keep the public in the dark about challenging new issues emerging under their watch. Okay, so we've we've talked about Site C Dam, which is mostly a conversation that we had about the environment, but it's also fits into you know, infra infrastructure spending. Mm -hmm. And one of the hot topics that's been for three now three consecutive provincial elections is about the Massey Tunnel. There's been conversation about should it be a bridge, should it be a tunnel, or my question would be should it just be status quo for yet another election cycle? What's your view on the Massey Tunnel? Uh, my view is that it should be. It uh, should be what? It should be. What does that mean? <laughs> My view is we should get going on it, right? I mean, look, we, we've had this absurd situation where, uh, you know, plans were in place. The thing would be built by now. The thing, it would be built by now, right? I mean, it's a horrible, horrible log jam uh, on not only uh, commuter traffic, but also goods movement. I used to drive through there uh, every couple of weeks when I was driving from Richmond to Surrey to, uh, uh, to uh, KPU board meetings. And it was horrific every single time. Everybody knows it needs to get done. And the reason it's not getting done is that the NDP is playing blacktop politics. Anything else they say is bullshit. 
what they're doing is they're deliberately delaying it because they want to allocate capital spending into places where they think that they can win ridings in subsequent elections. And the fact of the matter is, they have proven that they, uh, you know, that they're not going to complete uh, the things they said they would do. They uh, they made big promises and walked back uh, a hospital in Richmond, in Surrey, a uh, cancer center in Kamloops. Clearly, they said whatever it was going to take in order to win. And now we're going to spend the next several years watching them figure out how to retroactively justify whether or not why they're not doing the things they said they were going to do. So you know what? We can get caught up in uh, you know the exact right uh, technology or building form uh, for Massey, but the bottom line is we just need to get it done. And so just, just to be clear, then. Done. So just to be clear, then. You actually don't care whether it's a tunnel or a bridge. You don't have a position on that. Your, your position is let's just get one of the two done. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that oversimplifies it a little bit. But the bottom line is a good, solid plan was in place uh, for a bridge. I think it was a workable, viable plan. I think that— So any, you would lean more towards a bridge? I, I would probably lean slightly toward a bridge. But what I lean toward fundamentally is getting it done. The reason I think why we're having a debate about what form it should take is that the NDP has intentionally delayed the project because those are not ridings they expect to win. And what we're going to see for the next three years, and hopefully not seven years, is that the NDP are going to focus their efforts on where they can do blacktop politics to try to win. That's the reality. It's not about what's best for folks in that community. It's about what they can do to win and what they can do to service the places where they think that they can continue to form government. Okay. And by the way, I will add to that, we've seen time and again that's what happens when it comes to rural and urban British Columbia. In 2017, I remember being on global TV a couple of days before the election where uh, one of the premier's chief strategists said that they were focusing their efforts on the ridings that matter. <laughs> and that is how the NDP thinks. If it works for them and it's going to get them elected, that's where they're, fo- where they're going to focus. And the reality is what But isn't that every political party? Uh, of course it is. Everyone responds to political incentives, but they've made it clear. I mean, the Massey Tunnel example is a glaring example uh, in that regard. And, you know, the fact of the matter is you now have a government that is providing direction to the Electoral Boundaries Commission that will fundamentally change the nature of elections in this province going forward and tilt the balance from urban British Columbia uh, from rural British Columbia to urban British Columbia, that's going to be a huge, massive change that has the potential to really undo effective representation for people living in two-thirds of, of the landmass of this province. So, you know, we're seeing what's happening here. These guys are very, very focused on trying to stack the deck and make sure they've got as good a possible environment as they can to try to win the next election. And that's what they're going to focus on. Politics, politics, politics. Now, before I jump into uh, my cannabis questions, maybe for listeners to understand, you've got an experience in the cannabis space. Maybe can you just highlight it for a minute so people understand, have some context? Uh, certainly, yes. So I, I do have some experience in the sector. A lot of the work that I've done over the years has been in complex regulated industry, uh, whether that be in uh, in energy, whether that be in housing, whether that be in gaming, whether that be uh, all over the place. And one of the areas that I have worked in is uh, the regulated uh, cannabis sector, primarily uh, medical cannabis. So uh, I was involved in uh, in building a company that did uh, regulatory and security and compliance consulting uh, in the cannabis sector, uh, as well as a few other uh, companies that I helped to build out or invest in. Okay, great. Well, then you're going to be able to answer these with a breeze. <laughs> Number one, cannabis has been legal in Canada since 2018. And for the record, I was pretty critical of our country's decision to move ahead with this and be one of the guinea, global guinea pigs for legalized cannabis. And of course, Justin Trudeau, and you're going to hear my biases on this, decided to pass on 
all the problems related to rolling out legal cannabis to the provinces. Illegal cannabis operators supply the market with unregulated product, they don't pay taxes, and they're run by gangsters. What is your position on cannabis in BC today? How do you view it? Yeah, good question. Uh, maybe let's just roll back a few years. 2018 is when recreational cannabis was legalized in Canada. Uh, and circa 2015, what you had is the Trudeau government uh, moving forward with a broader legalization of medical cannabis. Prior to that, much of the medical market was driven by a series of court cases. So it's important to understand that because it kind of speaks to where we are in terms of this industry. Uh, now, the reality is cannabis has long been a multi-billion dollar industry uh, underground across Canada. And British Columbia had about a 70% market share of that underground industry. Massive billions of dollars in economic output, one of British Columbia's largest export economies, and frankly, a massive gravy pot for organized crime. Uh, there were plenty of people that were uh, taking part in that economy who certainly were you know, individual growers, people of that nature, who weren't looking to be hardened criminals. But there is certainly a criminal element that benefited for years from billions of dollars in revenue uh, in that sector. What I think is important to understand is that the regulated legal cannabis industry in Canada and in British Columbia is not a new industry built from nothing. It's a new industry, a new regulated industry being built on top of a very substantial, embedded, and robust uh, uh, underground economy, an informal economy. So even today, uh, only about 22 to 25% of the cannabis sold in British Columbia is actually sold in the regulated market. Right? So we have to understand there's this long-term embedded informal economy that is very entrenched in British Columbia. You see a problem with that? Of. Yes, I do. Um, there's a couple of reasons why I see a problem with that. The first is it's a fundamental issue of tax fairness. If you've got, let's say, $6 billion worth of cannabis industry that is happening in British Columbia that is existing, is existing outside of the formal economy, that's obviously very negative uh, for people who are paying taxes to support goods and services and policing and all of these things. Uh, and there's a vast, vast industry that's being taxed by gangs rather than taxed by the government. That's a fundamental issue of tax fairness. But there's also a broader issue, which, uh, I mean, you can look to, uh, there's, economist, there's an economist named uh, Hernando de Soto, Peruvian economist who studies informal economies. And he talks about the challenges that emerge in gray market economies. So let's say, for example, you're a cannabis grower in, you know, uh, in the Kootenays. Now, you've got no security of contract, no recourse to the law, no clear asset ownership, no ability to get a mortgage on the basis of... You're talking about being, a, being an illegal cannabis if were, if you, Yeah, if you were existing in the unregulated uh, sector, right, if you're, if you're a grower. So there's a vast number of people who are stuck in that position where I think many would like to migrate into the regulated economy. But just like everybody else, they're going to make rational decisions based on their own economic interests. So we've actually constructed, the BCNDP has constructed a market today in cannabis where it really doesn't make any sense for either suppliers or buyers to partake in the regulated industry. If you're buying cannabis today, cannabis is a little bit like sushi in Vancouver. It's really hard to find bad sushi and it's really hard to find particularly bad cannabis. That's the honest truth. Although there are definitely contamination issues and other things in the unregulated market, uh, the fact of the matter is as a purchaser of cannabis, most people are not going to pay twice the money just to support a bloated government bureaucracy. They're not going to. 
they're going to go to the unregulated market, which is very, very established and embedded. So what you're seeing is a vast amount of economic activity that is not migrating into the regulated economy. You're seeing growers who are choosing to remain in the unregulated economy because you'd be asking them to get paid half as much or a third as much for a craft they've been doing for 20 or 30 years. Nobody's going to rationally go against their own self-interest in order to move into economy just because uh, government says so. So we've got to be much smarter about the way that we try to move much more of that, that activity into the regulated sector. And we've got to make sure we recognize that right now, as it stands, under the rules currently enacted, we are losing billions of dollars in economic activity from British Columbia to Alberta to Ontario, soon to the United States, and to the unregulated economy. So we need to fundamentally rethink the way we're approaching this industry, in my view. Okay. So I think you already know the answer to this then. How do you feel the NDP has been doing on this file? I don't think they've been doing very well. I think they've got, uh, they probably have good intentions, but you know, as always with them, it's bad execution, right? So they had a recommendation that came to them from their own government staff that suggested that they should learn lessons from uh, the way that uh, alcohol distribution is run in this province and that they should actually move toward more of a private sector model for the distribution of cannabis. What did they do? A giant handout to the BC Government Employees Union. They created a massive bloated bureaucracy that didn't know how to buy cannabis, didn't know how to distribute cannabis, and massively drove up the cost. And the result of that is it actually, just on the basis of price alone, kept a vast number of people continuing to buy uh, product through the unregulated marketplace. And again, to be taxed by gangs rather than taxed by government. So I think they've dropped the ball when it comes to distribution profoundly. Uh, they've dropped the ball when it comes to policing and enforcement and shutting down uh, um, unregulated dispensaries, and they've dropped the ball in terms of the opportunity to bring people uh, from the unregulated market into the regulated market. Okay. There's a lot of work to be done on that file. Okay. Okay. So um, on the point of uh, enforcement, I actually had a call with Minister F Mike Farnworth very recently and uh, expressed to him my frustration over the lack of enforcement in the illegal cannabis space. Um, how would you address uh, enforcement if you were the head of the BC Liberal Party? Yeah, there's a couple of ways to approach that. The first is to start with recognizing just how bad it's been, right? So the Provincial Community Safety Unit has spent tens of millions of dollars, levied a few hundred thousand dollars in fines. I don't have the current numbers, but a very, very small pittance in fines, and appears to have basically no ability to actually shut they have down no teeth. unregulated dispensaries. Exactly, exactly. Zero. I think nothing. listeners should understand what this is so that people understand. The PS, the PCS, the P Provincial Community Safety, what's it called again? Community Safety Unit. Safety Unit. Can you explain to the listeners what that is? Yeah, I'm not an expert on the yeah. CSU, but uh, but my understanding is that effectively it is there to enforce things like illegal dispensaries. So if, for example, you are a regulated retailer in, say, Vancouver, and you've gone through all the licensing processes, you've waited months and months to get your license done, you're paying, what are we at, $30,000 a year now in licensing fees? In Vancouver it is. Yeah, so you're paying to- Not in Kamloops. No, no, it's, it's definitely different depending on what jurisdiction you're in, but in Vancouver, you're paying uh, in part to support the idea that you're in a regulated industry. Yeah. And you might very well, as many people do, you might be one of these regulated retailers operating a professional, compliant, legal, above board business, and across the street from you, is someone who's running an illegal business with a duffel bag supply chain buying, uh, you know, buying cannabis uh, that is coming from the unregulated market. And they're eating your lunch. 
They're selling for cheaper than you, under less rules than you. They're not paying taxes in many cases, and they're basically just eating your lunch. And uh, under the NDP, there is a massive and ongoing failure to actually enforce the law and get those unregulated dispensaries out of business. And that's a profoundly huge problem because effectively what we've said to all these entrepreneurs who invested their hard-earned capital in setting up these regulated retailers, which are supposed to be part of a transition we're trying to enact that brings billions of dollars of economic activity out of the unregulated sector into the regulated sector, we're telling them, you've got to follow the rules including all the bureaucratic rules set out by the way that distribution is done, all the markups they've got to pay, all the taxes they've got to pay, the 20% vape tax, all these things, you've got to follow all those rules. But those guys across the street, they're just going to ignore all the rules and we're not going to do anything about it. And we're not even collecting any money from what they're generating. Exactly, exactly. And that is really, you know, the loss here is we're talking right now, the estimate is there's about $2 billion in regulated cannabis market activity happening in British Columbia and $6 billion in the unregulated industry. That is a profound loss for the taxpayers of British Columbia. What's the PST at? It's at 7%, right? Seven times $6 billion is $420 million a year. There you go. Sorry. I should know. I mean, I manage money for a living. $4 billion of it. We won't show this video to your clients. <laughs> okay, let's keep this going because we're getting long in this. And I knew you got a call here shortly, Gavin. I want to talk about police. One question. What is your position on the defund the police movement and Mayor Kennedy's recent decision to step down as a spokesperson for the police? Uh, I would not defund the police. I think it's very important to recognize that we actually have uh, you know, every police force has issues. There are always going to be challenges. We need to make sure we're addressing those. But a huge amount of work has been done in Canada, and frankly, in particular, by the VPD, in terms of being a very progressive, forward-looking police force. There are obviously bad things that have happened that do happen. We need to make sure we stamp those issues out. But the reality is there's also a lot of very, very good work that has been done. So I think what we're seeing, frankly, is the importation of an American political narrative into Canadian politics, and we're seeing people trying to lean into that. So recently we saw a move to ban uh, uh, school liaison officers in uh, Vancouver and in New Westminster. Now I've talked to a ton of young people, people who graduated from schools that had major, major challenges, who will tell you outright that having a school liaison officer in their school saved their life, kept them out of gang life. So we need to make sure that we're not throwing out the baby with the bathwater or getting too engaged in virtue signaling that actually ends up making people less safe. Because when you talk to a lot of people, as I have, who come from uh, you know, uh, uh, communities of color or communities with greater exposure to gang issues, I hear a lot of support for smart, intentional programs like the, uh, like the School Liaison Officer yeah. Program. I'm gonna lighten it up a little bit, but we're gonna finish off on healthcare um, around your teeth. You got nice teeth, by the way. So you probably had a dentist. Years of braces. Seven years of braces. Thank you, Mom. So I had federal NDP MP Don Davies in on my show. And we had one topic. It was quite a neat conversation because normally I have politicians come in. We do this. We talk about a broad variety of topics so the listeners can hear, you know, who Gavin Dew is. But in Don's case, we talked about one thing only, and that was dental care and his advocacy for a federal dental care program for anybody making less than $90,000 a year. Why do we have to rely on Ottawa to provide this kind of service to us? And they're not providing it, by the way. And why can't the province implement it themselves? And, and what's your position on dental care, if you have one at all? 
I mean, I think your your point around why Ottawa is the reason why Don Davies is suggesting an Ottawa-based solution is that Don Davies wants to get reelected. Um, you know, with all due respect, it's a very important policy conversation that we should be having. But I would say, no, but in fairness, why would a, a federal MP be so passionate passionate about a provincial jurisdiction? Uh, because I assume he has a poll that says that it's supported by the incremental voter he's trying to reach. I live in Don Davies' riding, and I believe it's likely to be a swing riding in the next federal election. So I mean, I, I think I think we ought to okay. be really serious about the policy implications. I don't want to write those off. I'm just pointing. Which up riding is it called? Vancouver Kingsway. So Vancouver Kingsway, you think has a a, a, a bad teeth problem, and he's going to? No, no, no. I, I think <laughs> that it's, it's probably an issue that polls well. But I mean, yeah. to be totally clear, it's a very serious conversation. Yeah, but let's just okay. Let's let's forget about Don. For sure. Now. Let's just sure. go back to simply simply put, as Don said. Our healthcare system covers everything except this space here. Mm -hmm. In this space, you either have a program in place because you have an employer that provides you with some kind of dental care. So people who are in the gig economy who don't have those kind of benefits, marginalized people, people of you know like uh, uh, lesser means, don't have access to proper dental care. Mm -hmm. Do you have a view on dental care for British Columbians? I think we should actually broaden the conversation. You've actually touched on uh, a couple of pieces that get into the bigger conversation we need to have is what does the changing nature of employment mean for the changing nature of things like uh, health coverage and extended benefits? So I think I don't have a simple answer on that front, but I think we are going to have to take a really serious look at the way that the employment relationship uh, has changed in our in our society, right? We are no longer in a situation where people get into a job and stay there for 10 or 20 or 30 years. The average person stays in a job for 18 months today. So if we're talking about things like benefits coverage, yeah. uh, whether it be through uh, government coverage or whether it be through portability of uh, benefits plans uh, or whether it be through finding new ways, whether it be you know uh, market-based or government-based to provide better uh, insurance and benefits coverage for people who are in the gig economy or who are in what's called precarious work, I think we need to look at that very seriously alongside a broader kind of wholesale review of how we do taxes and how we do government programs in the new realities of the, the employment relationship that are emerging today because we really have programs that are built for a, uh, an employment relationship or kind of a, you know, a social contract that was built decades ago that really is increasingly no longer the case for uh, the younger next generation. Very true comment. Well said. All right. Um, we want to get to you t pitching to the listeners why they should be voting for you if they're, if they're card-carrying uh, BC Liberals. But before we do, we're going to go to my two favorite topics, which is taxation and responsible spending. So let me start with taxation. If BC wants to attract more startups and encourage entrepreneurship, they need to implement a significant policy change or policy changes. Currently, the business tax rate jumps from 2% to 12% once a company's reach only $500,000. Not profits, just the top line revenues. Mm -hmm. What are your ideas around creating more investment in British Columbia? Yeah. So, I mean, the issue you flag is a very serious one for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is, of course, that there are other provinces and other jurisdictions that would love to come eat our lunch, uh, Alberta being chief among them, right? You've got a huge, huge, huge situation happening in Alberta where you've got uh, an economy and a government that are hungry for job creation. Uh, you've got a ton of inexpensive office space, uh, in many cases sitting vacant in Calgary. Calgary, Alberta they're coming for our tech sector. And you've seen a number of companies leave 
because at the end of the day, if you're a government and you're dealing with a an industry or a sector that is not tied to the land base, you've got to recognize that they don't actually have to stay, right? You have to make sure you're creating an environment where companies and people that are creating jobs want to be here. And that is a function of good policy on a variety of fronts, right? I mean, making sure we maintain this beautiful environment that we have is part of what draws people to want to be here and set up companies if they could be anywhere. But how much tax is too much where people start saying, you know what, neither I nor my company, we're not gonna stay here, we're gonna go somewhere else. Your point around the, the $500,000 cutoff there, that's really important for two reasons. The first is that basically creates um, a, a bit of a ceiling where companies are disincentivized from growth. They're disincentivized from becoming bigger. And what we obviously should want is for companies to go from being small enterprises to medium enterprises to bigger and bigger enterprises. So there's a skewed incentive there, I think, that exists at that $500,000 threshold, uh, firstly. And the point you raised as well around revenues uh, is very, very important because especially if you're talking about the tech sector and you're a company that's in growth mode, you could easily be generating that much revenue and making and, and be far away from actually being at all profitable. Totally. Right? Because you're in the process of growing your user base, you're investing heavily in tech development, you're investing heavily in in marketing to grow your, again, to grow your user base. Um, I think we ought to be looking at that very, very seriously alongside a broader range of, um, of and, policies. And two completely sector. different industries can have very different levels of margins. Yes, absolutely. You could be running a grocery store and I could be running a, a hat shop and my hat shop, like the lids, right? They, you know, where they, they sell hats for 40 bucks, but they only cost me $10. I got huge margins. Yeah. You're running a grocery store and the margins are like razor thin, 3%. Exactly. And so we both get to half a million bucks. I'm making a fortune and you're barely scraping by. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we've got to get really serious about tax policy and we have to look again. My belief is we frankly should be probably comprehensively reviewing our entire tax policy set because okay. we've got, you know, we've got uh, the gig economy peace component happening. We've got a shift to work from home, which has some different components around uh, taxation, benefits, all these other pieces. We've got, uh, you know, we need to get a lot better, I think, as a province at understanding what our new engines of growth are, including new tech, including new cannabis, inclu including the cannabis sector and those areas. And we probably need to do a comprehensive review of taxation to make sure it's working and setting the right incentives to grow our economy. Okay. Okay. Good, Gavin. Let me touch on a couple of the things that would have to be reviewed in this sort of bigger conversation. Let's start with the NDP's choice to scrap MSP premiums for individuals, and then they layered on the employer health tax. Would, do, would you reverse that if you had the ability to do so? Um, I don't think so. Uh, I think it, we've got to recognize, firstly, that you know the MSP uh, was regressive, uh, and there was a good case we made for scrapping it. It was unpopular with a lot of British Columbians, um, and and, uh, and I think it, it made sense to get rid of it. What nobody I think saw coming is that you know the NDP would come along and bring in uh, the the EHT. Um, I think we have to recognize we've got to pay for stuff. We've got to pay for stuff. Right? I think everybody understands we've got to pay for healthcare. Everybody understands that healthcare is a large and growing um, cost item. I think people that look at the numbers recognize that we have a very, very scary situation coming down the pipe over the next 20 years where our dependency ratio is going to get tougher and tougher and tougher. And you're going to have 
a uh, a really sh- a big shift in the balance of people that require health care and other retirement type benefits and a and a you know a smaller number of people who are who are paying for that so we've got to collect taxes to pay for healthcare. I think the fundamental question is what's the right and fair way to do that? And how do we avoid playing, you know, silly games where I think in the case of the NDP, they were trying to achieve a political win by saying you're not going to pay for healthcare anymore, business is. But the reality is, again, you can't really actually tax a business. You can only tax people through a business. So if you layer more and more cost onto small business, you make it harder for them to operate, you make it harder for them to survive, and you increase the likelihood that they're going to have to raise prices to cover that cost from people. So I think government's got to be honest. Like When you're taxing, you're taxing. There's only actually one taxpayer. We've got to have a fair and appropriate way to do tax collection, but let's not play around with trying to you know, uh, uh, shuffle things around and pretend we're not taxing people. Well, it's, uh, it's, what you've done is you've really simplified it, but I completely agree with what you're saying. And so on that topic of there is really one taxpayer, and that's individuals, the highest tax rate in BC today, the highest marginal tax rate in BC today is 53.5%. Under the old BC Liberal government, it was at uh, 49.5%, yeah. roughly around there. Uh, and I can say um, that I'm you know, lucky enough, successful enough, you know, fortunate enough, whatever you want to describe it, I happen to be in that category. I, I wasn't always. Um, but good for and you. I'm, and I'm proud I am. Success. Yeah, absolutely. But I'll tell you, when, and I know you listen to the podcast with Val, so you've already heard this, but when the BC NDP announced the tax increase in the highest marginal tax bracket, and all of a sudden my went, rate went from ab- below 50% to above, and I looked at it and go, okay, so now I go and take a risk as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, and if I risk a, a certain you know, enterprise that I have to put money into, and it doesn't pan out, yeah, I got some kind of cap tax loss I can apply against some future gain. But if it pans out, I got to give 53 and a half cents on every dollar I make to the government. To me, is that's just unjust. So my question to you is, if you had the ability to, first of all, starting as, a, as the BC, uh, head of the BC Liberal Party, what would your position be on these marginal tax rates? I think there's a few different issues there. Uh, the first is, let's start by acknowledging the elephant in the room that as soon as any BC Liberal ever talks about this, the NDP will put out a press release saying that you're, it's, a, it's a giveaway to the 1%, right? That's where the NDP will go. So literally anything you could say that goes in a different direction on that front, that attack will predictably come. Um, but I think we actually do need to be nuanced. That's true. Yes. Uh, but we need to be nuanced about this because what I think the NDP doesn't really understand is that people have choices. The more money people make, the more choices they have. They have choices about what tax strategy they're going to undertake. They have choices about where they're going to live. They have choices about how they're going to structure their businesses or structure their affairs. They have choices about whether they're going to do that here. So we have to acknowledge that reality. People respond to economic signals. They respond to economic incentives. And they do what is in their rational self-interest to a reasonable extent. Um, so I think we have to acknowledge that that reality. We also need to look at the fact that not only is that that um, that 50% number, that tipping point, you're right. There's a big psychological effect there where people say, look, I'm willing to pay my taxes. I want to pay the price of civilization. I want to pay for roads. I want to pay to make sure that people are taken care of. Everybody, I think, uh, or almost everybody is reasonable and, and, and believes that. Um, but 50% is a big psychological hurdle that elicits a reaction in folks who uh, who are making decisions about where to locate themselves, their families, their businesses. That's very significant. The other piece that's also very significant is at the threshold at which 
uh, that uh, tax rate kicks in is very, very low in British Columbia compared to... That's what, 250000 or two hundred thirty? Yeah, on that order. Uh, um, and uh, comparatively, you, you might see four or five times that as the, you know, where, where that highest rate uh, kicks in in, uh, in in other jurisdictions. So I think it's kind of about, you know, what is the incentive structure you're creating? Are you actually... I think most people think that if folks that are doing extraordinarily well should pay taxes. Now, the question is, you know, what constitutes doing well in our society and, you know, what kind of class politics are we playing here? Because if you live in, in the lower mainland, you know, to be clear, there are people who are struggling who are not, not, not making a lot of money. And I think we need to be very careful in that regard. Uh, and we need to take care of folks. But, you know, you're, you're not, you know, living the caviar dream. Uh, making $100,000 in a family or making $150,000 in a family uh, in British Columbia. You know, things can be tight. Things can be hard at all different levels of, of income. So I think we have to get really serious on the tax front. And most importantly, my core belief on this is uh, we need to talk not just about tax rate, but tax base. And that's where things like the cannabis sector come into play because you've got $6 billion in untaxed economic activity that is happening in British Columbia. You've got a ton of economic activity being driven out of this province or sucked out of this province by Alberta, Ontario, and soon the United States. And that would be a massive source of revenue that would uh, contribute to our, you know, to government coffers and make sure that we're able to deliver the services we need to deliver without continuing to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze the incremental taxpayer. So we've got to grow our tax base, not just raise our tax rates. Okay, good. Well, that's true. That's a good point. Thank you for that. Um, let's finish off by talking about responsible spending. And this is, I, I'm going to bring up one example. Um, I'm going to shock you here. I'm for it. You're for what? Responsible spending. Okay, <laughs> good. That's nice to hear. So responsible spending, it's one question. Where is the current government overspending? Well, just about everywhere. Uh, I mean, I think this is this is I'm kidding, obviously, right? But this is this is a government that uh, has uh, done more than 25 different tax increases, uh, and uh, I think fundamentally believes that they know how to spend your money better than you do, uh, and that is going to continue and continue and continue. And I think that you know, in a COVID context. Uh, there were certainly dollars that needed to be spent. There were programs that were needed. There were businesses and people that needed supports. And I think that everybody across the board uh, accepted the premise that money needed to be spent to keep things going during COVID. But as that ocean of spending peels back, I think we're going to start seeing where there are some very, very serious, serious issues in terms of either uh, you know one-time silly spending or structural issues that have been created. So to use two examples, I mean, uh, there was a, a, a support program for, for restaurants where um, I couldn't tell you the dates offhand, but you know, on one, uh, on one Friday uh, this spring, if you were a restaurant owner, you probably ordered a bunch of food. Because two weeks earlier, Premier Horgan had come out and said we were heading in the right direction. Yes. And you could do indoor dining and everything was fine. So on Friday, you put in your food order, five, $10,000 maybe, whatever that number was. And on Monday, as your food was in a truck, on its way to your restaurant, out comes the government and says, actually, never mind. Shut her down. So what happens? Now you've got a bunch of perishable food, which in all likelihood was wasted because government probably knew on Friday that they were going to be moving toward a shutdown on Monday. I would hope they had that information. If they had it on Friday, it would make sense to announce it on Friday. 
but because they didn't seem to understand the importance of predictability and forward-looking uh, policy for businesses, they effectively ended up destroying, let's call it $5,000 in perishable food that you had purchased. And a couple of weeks later, they announced, God bless government, I'm here from the government, I'm here to help, I'll give you a $5,000 grant. Great. Okay, here's $5,000 that covers the $5,000 worth of food that you destroyed two weeks ago. You're not any better off. Nobody's getting any more shifts because of that. You're not materially better off as a business, but there's $5,000 more in government debt due to a poorly thought-out execution of a well-intentioned program. And that is what we see from the NDP time and time and time again, is that they just don't understand how business works, and they squander money as a result. I think more broadly, on a system-wide level, we need to realize if you looked at about a 14-month period from the beginning of COVID, uh, you had, you know, by the time you got to the end of that 14-month period, private sector was down about 2-3%. And there had been a 10.3% increase in the size of government payroll in this province. 10.3% increase in public sector payroll, which was four times the increase of Ontario, three times the increase of Alberta. Now, about half of that increase was folks in the healthcare sector. We obviously need frontline healthcare workers. Obviously, there are important roles that folks play in the civil service, and we ought to respect them. But the reality is, if you're enlarging the size of government that drastically, and we don't see some of that pare down, we're going to see ongoing bigger and bigger, bigger government, bigger and bigger uh, spending, and a bigger and bigger tax bill. So we've got to make sure we're being responsible and smart and, frankly, innovative in the way that we deliver government services and try to find ways to do things more efficiently and more in line with the kind of customer service, uh, you know, taxpayer service expectation that people have today based on the world that we live in and the level of service that they can expect out there from the private sector. The Vancouver Sun published a report highlighting all the public servants that were earning over $75,000 a year. It's an annual, I think they call it the Sunshine, Sunshine Report or something like that. But it is a public document. So the CEO of the BC Investment Management Corporation, BCIMC, I think it's now called BCI, makes $3 bucks a year. 48 public service employment employees here in the province make over half a million dollars a year. And 3,800 public sector employees make more than John Horkin does. And you just highlighted another point, which is this ballooning of public service employees. In fact, the latest numbers I saw from Stats Canada is that Victoria has a lower unemployment rate than Vancouver, which has more employment opportunities. And I'm from Victoria. My whole family lives there. So I get what's going on over there. There's no knock against all my family and friends who work in the public sector, but like, there's a lot of jobs being created over there. Would you support the audit of a BC public service payroll? Yeah, I think we probably need to do some core review, right? Anytime you get at, you know, get to the end of an NDP government, what you're going to find is a lot of bloat, right? So there's going to have to be some core review. But I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a small government fundamentalist uh, or, or you know, some kind of a, you know, a spiteful cutter of government jobs. That's not how I think. My belief, though, is that we do need to be really, really serious about how we can deliver value for money for people from the tax dollars that they are paying. And where I have concern is, you know, we need to make sure we have smart, talented people uh, that are doing the work of government. We need smart, uh, you know, nonpartisan bureaucrats who are doing good work in the public service. And we should be thankful that we have an excellent public service here built by the BC Liberals, <laughs> taken over by the NDP. But, 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 it's so important that we are, that we do not view public sector bureaucracy as sacrosanct. 
because the truth is if you're in a private sector environment, the ways in which services are delivered change fundamentally. The way in which data gets processed, services get delivered, uh, you know, interactions with, uh, with the customer or you know, interactions with the taxpayer happen, those all drastically, drastically evolve. I don't think we should be, you know, going to war with public sector unions or anything like that. That's not my way of thinking about things. But I do think we need to be um, constructive and work together with uh, our public service to figure out, okay, you know what, if there's a way for us to deliver this same service with 70 people that used to be delivered with 300, well, let's think, make sure we're not just you know, that we're actually drawing it down, but we're doing so in a way that's appropriate and compassionate and forward-looking, where we're identifying different places that people could be, where we're identifying transition paths, where we're recognizing where things are going. Because I actually think it gets to a broader issue, and that is that uh, we will be facing over the coming decades major changes in the way that services are delivered and economies happen. Right? This is We are the province that took seven years and two governments to figure out how to regulate ride-sharing. Right, that we mistook it for an ethnic political issue and we made it very ethnically politicized. But the truth is, it was a canary in a coal mine for how things are changing and how we need to think about service delivery. Right, So you're going to see uh, long-haul trucking is going to change drastically in terms of automation. Service delivery, uh, y y y we've seen a, a major change, what I call kind of the storefront apocalypse in terms of restaurant and retail. Five or seven years of change happened as a result of COVID because there was massive uptake around delivery. The legal industry is being disrupted. The accounting industry is being disrupted. Everything is being disrupted by technology, much of it geared toward improving you know, the consumer experience or cost of life. And yet, government often is very, very rigid and slow-moving comparatively. So I don't think we should be, again, you know, going to war uh, with public sector unions or vilifying people who work in government by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think there's lots of opportunities for us to bring innovation that is now common outside of government into government. Okay. Well said. Very last question for you. When should this government balance its budget? Good question. I think that, uh, you know, there was a time in British Columbia where balanced budgets were sacrosanct as, as a political message. I've talked to senior economists in this province who have, frankly, pulled back a little bit on their um, uh, rigidity around balanced budgets. I think that it is important as a goal for us to move toward, you know, balanced, sustainable government. I don't think government should spend beyond its means, but I think right now we need to be very, very careful as we come out of COVID, especially that we are, uh, you know, drawing down on the kinds of supports and the kinds of spending that have been necessary during COVID and not just baking all of those into the long-term operating costs of budget of, of, of government. So I would like to see, you know, a reasonable and appropriate, you know, multi-year drawdown. I don't think we need to be, certainly as, as leader of the BC Liberal Party, I would not be running, uh, you know, a party of austerity. Although I think quite honestly, whatever we do, the NDP will try to attach that label to us. Um, I think we need to take an appropriate balanced approach where we're drawing down those supports and we're getting back into balance and we're ident identifying, you know, where have the costs of government um, uh, bloated. People just stopped noticing how much money we were spending during COVID, right? All of a sudden it went from a million to a billion and it was just money, 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 money everywhere. And I think that, again, there was appropriate and good spending, but we need to make sure that, you know, in the fullness of time, we return to clear-eyed scrutiny of where money is being spent. We get back into balance, 
and we start getting really, really serious about managing the cost of government. Okay, great, great answer. Gavin, this has been a great conversation. I want to open this up for you for uh, final comments. Um, you've obviously, you're very passionate about this. You're well-spoken. Let the listeners hear about what they want to hear, what you want to tell them. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. Uh, Andrew, I really appreciate the conversation. Uh, it's been a, a great opportunity to dive into a bunch of, a bunch of issues in, in a lot of depth. So, uh, so thank you for that. I think it's really important that uh, this leadership race is a conversation about ideas. We need to be putting forward new ideas, new energy, new ways of thinking about issues, uh, you know, new ways of, of, of taking values that are fundamental to our party and articulating them in a way that makes sense, especially to the next generation of voters. And I think that is fundamental to where we're going with this BC Liberal leadership. Uh, we need to look to the future, not the past. We cannot close our eyes and hope and pray that things go back to you know the year 2000 and that we're on the eve of a 2001 election where we're going to sweep the NDP government uh, out to sea. The reality is we are in for a long, hard, tough rebuild. We are up against changing demographics. We are up against changing electoral boundaries. We are up against an NDP government that has changed fundamentally. And if we rely on the old narratives, if we rely on the old political frames, if we rely on, you know, uh, on, on looking backwards in terms of leadership, I think we're going to have some real trouble because we have to win over the next generation of voters. We have to convince that 25 to 45-year-old multicultural suburban striver who is working hard and trying to get ahead and feeling as if the rungs on the ladder are further and further and further apart or are broken for them. We have to convince that voter that we are their party. We're not just the party of big business, we're the party of small business. We're not just the party of those who have achieved the Canadian dream, we're the party of those who are striving to achieve the Canadian dream. I think that's so critically important, and that's where I think having a new leader with new energy from a new generation of voters can go a very, very long way to reestablishing the relevance and the political viability of our party. Very well said, Gavin. Uh, Gavin Dew, BC Liberal Leadership Candidate. Uh, thank you for being on Coastal Front today. Best of luck with your uh, campaign. Thank you so much for having me. And of course, if folks want to learn more, they can go to www.gavindu.ca. Thank you, Gavin. Appreciate it.